turn to the Song of Solomon. Be preaching from that book. Talk to a lot of people who say that they have never heard a sermon from the Song of Solomon. So you've heard quite a few now <laughs> as we go through this series. It is a book that is a bit uh, different, one that we have to get used to and get our heads around a little bit. But it's been it's a very important book. I think we've been seeing that for us today. It has so much to say to us. So uh, this it, it, it's a beautiful song and. It presents the indescribably beautiful love of Christ for his church and of his church's response of love and dedication of devotion to him. And it does it through poetic imagery. It's not a technical book. It's poetic When speaking of God, the Bible often uses poetry to explain things that you can't really quite describe in a technical way. Things that have to do with relationship or with care or things like that. So we need to have that understanding. It has to be grounded in sound doctrine from the the technical things about how we're saved and all of those kind of things. But then we have this to help enhance those, those fundamental doctrines to to, to help us to understand the richness and the fullness of them. For example, when we talk about um, God's greatness and strength and his, his, how he, he doesn't move easily, he's not, you can't move him, then he's called our rock. And uh, you know, God's not a piece of stone, but we use that to illustrate something about him as, as a, a, a picture. He's called a shepherd, He's not a guy that out in the, um, out in the weather with the, his shepherd's crook, but he's one who cares for his people the way a shepherd cares for sheep. We call him the light and because he's the God who brings light and truth into the darkness of the world. And if poetry is needed to describe the person of God like that, how much more is it needed to describe the ineffable relationship that he has with his people? That as our Savior, that he, the people that he has redeemed, the love and the commitment that he has to us for all eternity, that's a stronger bond and a deeper bond than even a husband and wife have. He uses that to illustrate it. The strongest bond that we have in the world, he uses to describe our relationship with God, the husband and wife bond. That's the one that God made the strongest. Some people say, no, parent and child. No, God made the husband and wife the strongest bond. The child, parent and child is a strong one too. Uh, and God uses that one to describe his relationship with us. He's our father and we're his adopted sons. He uses all of the different ones. We're a servant, servant and a master. There's, there's all sorts of different ones that he uses. But the song, the song of Solomon uses the love that a man who is a loving husband has for his wife and the devotion that she, as a devoted wife, has for him to illustrate to us the love that Christ has for his redeemed people and the devotion that he has or or that we have in response to him. So we learn then through the picture of marriage and marriage relations even uh, something about our relationship with God and the great love that Christ has for his church. Today in the Song of Solomon, we have come to chapter 7, and I'll read the first 10 verses of this chapter. 
give attention because this is the word of God that I'm going to read to you. The word of God which comes with authority and power. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breast be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. So here you have a husband rejoicing in his wife to illustrate for us what we saw in our call to worship, that the Lord our God, as a husband, delights in us, that he is the one who is taken with us the way a husband is, with his wife. So this is a very encouraging thing for us to consider. May the Lord add his blessing to what we have just read as we consider it now. In this part of the song, chapter 7, that we're looking at today, he describes really how lovely that, that we, his bride, are to him when we have been restored to him, when we've come back to him after being away because of our our sin or our resistance. Last week, we've been following this for a while, last week we saw in chapter 6 how eager he was for us to return to him fully without any of the hesitation that we so often have when we come to the Lord, especially when we have sinned. You remember how he showed us that as soon as we were ready to receive him, then nothing could keep him away. Like as soon as he saw that that we were ready to, to welcome his love, then then it was like a chariot that went out. Our, our cries for him to return to us were like a chariot that he got in the chariot and came. That was how the picture that was used. Our yearning for him is, is like that. It made him come in haste. And you'll remember how he explained that he had desired us the whole time that, that there was a separation going on when he had withdrawn for a little while when we'd resisted him. So when we're alienated from the Lord, maybe because of our rebellion or something like that, the Lord is still actually present with us, but he doesn't make himself known. So his absence is described as absence because he's not making himself known to us. So he pled with us to return and uh, in, in 6.13 saying, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. He wants us to stop holding back because of our guilt and shame when we have wronged him and it's caused separation, when we have been restored. 
even though we wronged him unjustly, we have reason to be ashamed. Yet he wants us to, he wants our sorrow about what we have done and the separation that we've had from him to be turned to joy again. Dancing full of joy, as, this, as Psalm 30 sa- says. He wanted to see us celebrate and delight in our restoration with him. He wanted to see, he wanted his friends to see us and to celebrate with us as two camps coming together. That was at the end of chapter 6 in, in verse 13. His friends, the Father and the Holy Spirit and the angels in heaven who rejoice when one sinner repents, wanted to see us, the saints in glory and the ministers of the gospel perhaps who are praying for our restoration. The thing he delights in most about us is our love and devotion to him. And he wanted to see that that joyful devotion to him in his bride. He wanted his friends to see it. He does not want the partial devotion of those who don't realize that in him we have full forgiveness and complete acceptance that come hesitantly and reluctantly as if they're maybe going to be rejected. He is ever and ever drawing us in and helping us to see how great his love is for us and how complete his salvation is so that we'll come to him without any hesitation whatsoever. He wanted to see us dancing with joy because of that restored relationship with him. So in the passage that we're looking at today, he describes how desirable we are when we are, as it were, dancing with joy because of his acceptance of us. He's saying, you are so delightful to me and so desirable. You make me rejoice when you come to me in that full kind of way. Now understand, this is poetry here that we're looking at. He describes the beauty of a woman restored and dancing here to tell us how lovely we are to him when we're filled with joy in his salvation and the the redemption that we have in him. He deeply, deeply loves the people that he made. He created us with his own hands. He made us holy and upright so that we were devoted to him as our God. When we were first created, we came, Adam came from the hand of God and Eve, holy and upright, devoted to him with deep devotion that is fitting and right for us to have to, to our God who is gracious, loving, merciful, just, wise, holy, all, all things. We should have had bedazzled admiration for him, been bedazzled with him, just overcome with, with his greatness. Uh, like, a, like a woman in love, you know, looking with delight upon her husband who has accepted her. That's how we were created to be, how we ought to be toward our God. That's what we're like when we have God as our God. When we properly have God as our God, we're, we're overcome with him and he with us. It is reprehensible. It is the most reprehensible thing of all that we should have ever rejected him as our God. That's what Adam did. Disobeying God, even in the thing of just, say, he was just eating some fruit. No, but he was disobeying God Almighty. He was rejecting God as ruler over all. God is his God. And he was no longer at all what he ought to be. Yet how he loves us when we are simply what we should be again, when he's restored us and brought us back to be devoted to him again. When we've, we've been cast into the, 
We, we deserve to be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then he comes to us to redeem those that he has appointed to salvation. He could have left us all to perish, you see. But he loved what he had made so much. He made us so that our love would, would be a, the free expression of our hearts. And so that we were capable of falling away. He knew that being made such, we would fall away. But his intention all along was that he was going to redeem his elect people, the people that he had chosen from before the foundation of the world. And that's what he did. He didn't redeem, he didn't choose people because they were better, but because they were the same. They weren't any different. He chose us freely to show his free grace and love. So in restoring us, the son had to become flesh with a true body and soul. He had to live in a beautiful way that we were created to live that I described before with appropriate delight and devotion to God as his God. And then to restore us, he, that one, the Son of God in our flesh, had to bear our penalty on the cross. He had to be punished for our sins so that justice could be satisfied. He did this, why? Because his love was so deep and so great. In loving us, he gives us even more reason, like, in loving us like that, he gives us even more reason to love him. He breaks the bondage that he cast us under and he draws us back to himself through the preaching of the gospel, calling us to come to him and be restored, pouring out his Holy Spirit on us to change our heart so that we will respond to him. Because we won't even respond to the gospel that calls us to be restored unless he works in our heart. And when by his grace we come, he works in us by his spirit and through various means to draw us into complete devotion, the complete devotion that he desires. When we who have come to him for salvation go astray, and we certainly do go astray as long as we're in this world, he remains faithful. He chastens us and he sends his call to convict us and he calls us to return again like he did with the Shulamite. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return at the end of chapter six. He works in us so that our love for him and our devotion to him is constantly increased. One of the things that he uses is the renewed revelation of his love and commitment toward us in the times when he restores us to deepen our devotion to him. He is growing us to maturity. We are, as we have seen, his garden and the fruit that he brings forth in us is primarily our love to him, our love to God, our devotion to him. What we said before is the greatest commandment that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's turn now to his description of the beauty that he finds in us when we are filled with joy in being restored to him. In those times, we're not always like that. But when we're, we've been restored and we're overcome with joy, he finds that so delightful. And he describes how delightful it is to him when he sees his wife, his bride, in that manner. He begins with exclaiming, about the beauty of our feet. If you look at the text in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, the beauty of our feet when we're filled with joyful devotion to him. He says, verse 1, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. Why does he start with our feet? Because in the other places where they have these uh, little little praise uh, sections of either praising him, her praising him, or him praising us, then it usually goes from head to foot. But this goes from foot to head. Why is there a difference here? 
Well, one reason it has been suggested is because he was looking to see her dancing with joy in the imagery that she used, and the feet are the noticeable thing where you begin when you're looking at someone who is, who is celebrating their return. So that could be a reason for that. Uh, what is signified by beautiful feet here? Well, keep in mind, as we begin our interpretation of this section, just want to make a comment about that in general, that the beauty mentioned here in physical terms is illustrating beauty of our spiritual relationship with Christ, which is sublime. We're using, in other words, like mentioned before, calling God a rock. He's like a rock. He's not a rock. So when we're talking about this, the feet and the beautiful feet, we're not really talking about feet but we're talking about what corresponds spiritually to our walk with God. So we, we need to realize that the, uh, the, the, the interpretation of these things is not technical or scientific, but it's impressionistic and artistic. As I've explained before in interpreting the song, we're to take the doctrines and precepts of our faith that are clearly revealed elsewhere and then let the song here illustrate those doctrines. We don't create new doctrines from the Song of Solomon, but we illustrate the relational aspect of the doctrines that we already know. We have a doctrine such as the full atonement that Christ made for sins, that because he died on the cross, that our sin is imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. We have full standing before him. That's very technical, isn't it? It's a good thing. We need to understand that. But the Lord enhances, what does that do as far as our relationship with him? He tells us things like, to refer to that one, he uses an illustration, he says, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. There's nothing really red about sin or nothing really white about non-sin, but we understand the picture that she is. It's like you're completely clean. Here's something red, and now it's completely white to show complete forgiveness. So this is the kind of way that God enhances our understanding of these things. So when we think of feet, we may think of what the Bible calls our walk. We're told to walk or behave. The Bible uses that all the time to talk about how we conduct ourselves in the world. We're we're to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Didn't we read that in Colossians earlier in chapter 1 of Colossians? We're told to walk in the way of God's commandments. We're told to walk in the light, his word informing and guiding us. Isaiah speaks of the beautiful feet of those who come to preach the gospel of peace, the glad tidings of salvation, the missionaries that go out. Beautiful feet here in the song are feet that are walking in joyful devotion to the Lord. They go according to his call. They go to comfort the one who mourns because they love Christ. They go to teach the one who is ignorant. They go to take bread to the poor. They go to fulfill their calling. Maybe it's something ordinary like changing their child's diaper. They do that to the glory of God. They go to help a neighbor. This is so important. The question, why do you do what you do? If you're delighting in Christ as your husband and you're rejoicing in your relationship with him, you do these things because of him as an expression of your joy in him? If, is your walk an expression of your joyful commitment to Jesus Christ? What could be more important than to live for him, to walk in the way that he has appointed, to do the things that he has commanded? 
What else do you have to live for that's worthy of living for? There is nothing in this world that's worth living for other than our creator and maker. We're going to have a relationship with him for all eternity. We're going to be here maybe 70, maybe 80 years, maybe 90, maybe 100. It's not very long compared to eternity. And all things we aim to be pleasing to him. But why does he mention the sandals here? Why does he say, how beautiful are your feet in sandals? Well, people would go barefoot in those days for various reasons to express things. Sometimes they would just because they were poor and they couldn't afford shoes. Sometimes because they were mourning. Sometimes they would take their shoes off because they were ashamed or afflicted. And of course, slaves would ordinarily go barefoot. She has her dancing shoes on because she's celebrating and rejoicing which signifies spiritually that we're walking in the joy of our relationship with Christ and our restoration to him. We've been accepted and we're filled with joy and a sense of his acceptance. So, So we're living for his pleasure. Notice that the beloved gives us a title here as well. He says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. We were in poverty and in shame in our sin. We were cut off from God. But now He, our Heavenly Father, has put shoes on our feet. Remember when the prodigal son came home? Put shoes on His feet. He's not a slave, He's a son. We have been born of Him, born of God, by the Holy Spirit. Born from above. Begotten of God. Made a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are, to use the language of the bride, the daughters of God. And the bride of Jesus Christ. You may remember the word for prince that we saw last week. Nadib, that we saw that last week, refers to one who acts freely and generously. In the Bible, the idea of a prince is someone who is, it's related to the word for generosity or freely acting. So, for example, it's used in Psalm 110 verse 3 where it says that we will be willing volunteers in the day of his power. We don't come as those who are forced to come and serve God. You've got to do this or else. But we come because we want to come. We say, Lord, here I am. Like, take me and guide me. Show me the way to walk. Like, guide my feet in the way that that you desire me to go. Our feet are lovely because they are princesses' feet or princes' feet. They act freely with delight in pleasing our husband, Jesus. We give ourselves to him to walk in the ways that please him. We do it joyfully, not because we're we're pressured to or we're going to get in trouble if we don't or something like that. Next, he praises the beauty of our thighs. He says, the curves of your thighs, thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. We think of the imagery of the dancing woman here, and we think certainly of the movement of her legs. Many think that the sockets of the joints are what is in view here. Um, that she moves about with, with grace and agility. There is a loveliness and a smoothness in the operation of her joints is that which has been designed by a skillful craftsman, someone that's skilled in workmanship, that her legs work in a beautiful manner. What is signified here about our relationship with Christ then? 
Again, these are pictures of our relationship with him. Surely it's related to feet. The feet walk in the ways of joyful obedience, as we've just seen, going where he wants us to go, going obedience to his commandments and fulfilling our calling. When he speaks of our thighs, he speaks perhaps of the way that we walk, the manner of our walking. What we do is very important. How we do it is also very important. If we're, if we're devoted to Christ, not only what we do, but how we do it is going to be affected. Good works are no longer lovely works when they are done in ways that are not beautiful. You know, we, we have a story that we read sometimes and they're giving each other gifts and they say, take it, you wretched thing. <laughs> Shove the gift out of them. There, there. You know, that, that kind of thing. It's not done in a beautiful way. Someone can be diligent at work and they can get everything done on the list and they can get it all done in time. But if they are harsh toward other people as they're going about that work and they're full of complaining and bitter judgment on others the whole time, their walk is no longer lovely. They did everything right, but they didn't do it right. They didn't do it in a lovely way. The feet are taking the right steps, perhaps, but there's no grace or loveliness in the movement because the thighs are not working right. He delights in us. Our husband, Jesus, delights in us because by his grace, our love and devotion to him causes us not only to obey, but to obey beautifully and graciously. As James Durham says, not only do we do what is right, but we do it rightly. So that's very... Very helpful for us. Next, he describes our navel as a rounded goblet that lacks no blended beverage. Now, this, is, <laughs> this has the interpreters in every age puzzled. The ones who take this as an allegory, as we're doing, representing Christ in the church, the ones who take it as a, a, a relationship, describing a, a relationship with a man and his wife that's actual, uh, literal kind of thing going on everybody's puzzled. Uh, what is this talking about? Um, well, the word navel is rare, but we're pretty sure what it means because of Ezekiel 16.4, where it speaks of what the umbilical cord is attached to. It makes a, the meaning of the word clear. Uh, and there is no widespread mention of navel like this in, in literature used in this way. Like a lot of the other things, you can find it in you know love songs and things like that of the, of the day. And, and how would it be like a rounded, how would the navel be like a rounded goblet where, with mixed wine inside of it? I mean, this is, who puts um, oils or something inside the navel? There's no known practice of, of doing that sort of thing, of pouring something inside the navel. Uh, we, don't, we don't know of that kind of thing. One of the more helpful interpretations that, that I, I found was that of George Burroughs, who suggests that the references to the entire lower trunk of the of the body if you will the goblet refers to the entire lower body with the curvature of the hips making the shape of a rounded goblet the rounded goblet refers that's something that is very well known in uh, the time of, of Solomon and in the time of the Greeks. It was, it was used all over the place. The Romans did this. They had a mixing bowl, a goblet. It was a large that they would use for mixing wine that was going to be then served to their guests. And these goblets would often be in a prominent place. Like if you came in a, a very fine home, 
you would see straight ahead of you as you came in the door, this goblet on the, the wall ahead of you. And it was the place where the, the most notable guests were seated near to that, where, where that goblet was. And, and then they would mix wine there. A lot of these goblets have been found for, by archaeologists and such. So looking at, what is, looking at what is signified spiritually in the bride of Christ, it would refer to what we saw perhaps. Now again, this is not super scientific when we're looking at poetry, but to the, it would refer to perhaps to what we saw about the, the, with the description of Christ in uh, earlier chapter with the inner affections. Remember how the Jews look at this, this lower part where the, where the bowels are. They look at it as the place of feelings. You see, the bride of Christ then here has feelings that are like mixed wine. There, there's a, a tenderness and a compassion she knows what it is to rejoice with those that rejoice and to weep with those that weep. She knows what it is to love and what is, what is to be hated and what is to be delighted in. She, she loves what is good and hates what is evil. There's, there's a proper mix of affections there. Her, they're well mixed. There's, she's not bitter. She's not soupy sentimental or sappy sweet. You know, that's not attractive. She's not sour. She's not melancholy. She's not superficial or giddy. She's not dry and cold. You know, her affections have grown up in the soil of Christ's love and in her devotion, her joyful devotion to him. There's a beautiful sweetness and empathy in her, a caring concern, a beautiful tenderness that is like Christ's tenderness. It pleases him. He is satisfied with the beverage. That's what is being shown. That however it is, however it is with relation to the navel, there is this mixed wine in her that is pleasing to him. That's the the picture that we're given that we take away. And we see that there is something that is very pleasing to him. Next, he praises her waist as like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Here again, there is some challenge in the interpretation. The word waste is usually translated as stomach, so I think it's probably better. Some of your translations might say that. And likely refers to the the midsection above the navel as we're moving up in the body here. The Nat Bible says that a heap of wheat is visually appropriate because of the similarity of its symmetrical shape to refer to that part of the body. Wheat was, of course, one of the main staple foods of uh, food sources in Israel. So this may be praise of her as one who nourishes with her love and devotion to Christ and especially nourishing his people. See, she is like mixed wine to make him glad and like wheat to nourish his body, to nourish him and to feed his children. Remember how we've often mentioned how the bride, she's not one person, But she's the whole body of Christ, all the members of Christ, all believers make up the body of Christ. And the Bible talks about the body edifying itself in love, where one part ministers to another part and that sort of thing. So so here she is nourishing herself, so to speak. How She nourishes best when she is delighted with her husband, when she's in that joyful time of rejoicing him. With her goblet, she makes them glad 
and with her wheat she nourishes them with solid food. So does, she does this in a way that is most pleasing to Christ when her life is devoted to him, when she is celebrating her salvation and uh, her restoration to him. And then fifth, we see that uh, it talks about our breasts as the bride of Christ. Our, our breasts as the bride are devoted to Christ. They're, 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 next to, uh, they're next on the list here. They're praised by him. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. That's a beautiful and delicate image, isn't it? Little fawns, little little baby fawns, uh, twins of a gazelle. Here is one of the most lovely and praised attributes of a bride depicted by this tender and delicate picture. Does Proverbs not exhort a husband to let the breast of his wife satisfy him at all times and not to look to another, not to turn to another for his satisfaction, but to, to look to his wife alone? Remarkably, a godly woman not only gives her breasts to her husband in that way, is an expression of love and, and devotion to him, she also gives her breasts to her children to nourish her children. It's a kind of a different use and yet the same part of her. The spiritual analogy is obvious. When we have dancing full of joy in our union with Christ, we welcome his love. We welcome his embrace. We freely give ourselves to him. Freely giving, himself, freely giving herself to him was the very thing that we saw that the bride failed to do back in chapter 5 that led to the separation and all the things. He came knocking and she left him out in the cold and wouldn't let him come in. She wouldn't open the door, so to speak, to let him come in. She pushed him away when he came to embrace her. And we're going to see later in this chapter we're on now that that's what he does. He goes and embraces her. So uh, when, when she's joyful, in joyful union with him and devoted to him, then she freely gives herself to him. And at the same time, we also, though, as the bride of Christ, give our breasts to nourish his little ones, which we have brought forth by him for, for his glory. This requires no little sacrifice, no little effort. He is greatly offended when children grow up, children that are born in the church and the covenant, and they grow up and do not know him because their mother, the church, withheld the food that they needed to be supported and nourished for their growth. They left them to starve. Again, we're talking about spiritual things, aren't we? Fathers, you are to nourish the little lambs with the word of God that are in your home. Each day you're to give them spiritual food. You you are their mother and Christ is their father. Remember, as the bride of Christ, we're all the mother. God is the father, Jesus is our husband, and we're the bride and the daughters in in that sense. And wives, you also as the bride, you are to nourish your little children through the day, guiding them and nurturing them in the fear of the Lord, to see that what it is to love God and to know him, to walk with him, to trust him, to receive things from his hand, to look to him when there's trouble and sorrow, to give thanks to him for all the blessings that he has given us. Don't leave your children to starve. Give them of the breast, so to speak. Next, Christ praises us for the beauty of our neck when we are rejoicing in our union with him. 
He describes our neck as being like an ivory tower. Such towers were built as military strongholds. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes some that were built with huge marble stones, 25 feet in length, 10 feet in breadth, and 5 in depth. And they were precisely fitted together so that they were almost like a monolithic structure that they were so tight, the joints were so tight as these huge stones. I don't know how they moved them. Marble stones, how they put them together. But the thing looked like one great big white structure, one big stone. And here it's described as ivory. I don't think they ever really built one out of ivory, but this is showing that she is something very special, even harder than marble. I believe that's correct, that ivory would be harder than, than marble. So it's, um, it, it's quite a picture that's given here. So the, 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 uh, they were, these towers were then beautiful, but also strong and secure. There was a resilience in them that could not easily be overcome. We're told that the Lord himself is a strong tower and that we run to him for safety and protection to take refuge from our enemies. So what is signified by Christ describing our neck as an ivory tower? Well, perhaps it is resilience. Neck is often used that way as something that is resist, shows resistance, right? When you have a stiff neck, <laughs> that's a negative thing when it's toward God. We'll mention that in a minute. But uh, the, this is the beautiful resilience that we have as the bride of Christ when we're devoted to him as our husband. It is our refusal to go after other gods. Our refusal to elevate the emperor or the state, as it were, the civil magistrate, the government, to the place that belongs only to Christ. Our refusal to elevate church leaders, the pope or, or some other church leader, to the place that belongs only to Christ. Our refusal to elevate science or technology to the place of Christ. To be, as it were, any of these, the one who orders us and the one in whom we hope and we look for our wholeness. What do you look to for your wholeness? Only Christ can give you that wholeness of life. Of course, it is not that the civil magistrate has no place in governing us or that the church has no place in overseeing us or that science and technology has nothing to contribute to our welfare. It is rather that none of these should ever become Lord of our life. They must each stay in their place, in their lane. If our hope for wholeness, for peace, for salvation, for welfare is not found in Christ, then we're not looking in the right place. And we're in gross error. If we feel that by giving ourselves to, like a lot of people think that, oh, technology is going to save us. Somehow, as they work on things, they're going to develop it so that we can be immortal, so that we will never die. And all of our problems will be solved. We can alter the chemistry of our brains so that we don't have psychological problems and we can work all these things out. No, our problem is sin. Our problem is sin. That's why we behave badly. We want to say, oh, it's all answered here. 
No, it's not all answered in medicine. It's not all answered in technology. It's answered in reconciliation with our Creator God through Jesus Christ. And He delights to see us with that neck that is resilient, that will not turn to any of these other lords for life, these false idols that we look to to save us. The bride of Christ is the one who has been saved by him so that now she looks to him as Lord, as the one in whom she has hope and salvation. In Scripture, God's people, when apostate, are accused in a negative way of being stiff-necked. Their neck indeed was like a stone tower that will not bend or be moved. But then it was a very negative thing. But you see, when that's, because they were resisting the Lord and His call. But you see, when that same resilience is fixed upon Christ in, in allegiance to Him, then it is a neck that is set, that is set towards Him. It refuses to look to another Lord. Then it's lovely to Christ. It's something that He delights in. It's a beautiful neck. It's the stately neck of his devoted bride that he cherishes. She is no adulteress. She has an anointing. By his grace, she is devoted to him. Next, our Lord praises us for our eyes, declaring that they are like the pools in Heshbon. These pools are not uh, present today. You can't go and say, oh, look, there's one of the pools of Heshbon. There's not a place you can visit for that, but we know that they were around at this time and they were basically reservoirs that were noted for their virtue, as you can tell by the context. They were fed by brooks in the area that uh, Burroughs says were probably a lot purer and fresher than the waters of Jerusalem that weren't all that great. So here are these, these prized pools where you can get really good water from the pools of Heshbon. The woman's eyes are praised then for their clarity, for their purity, for their beauty, for their depth, as you could see in these pools. The spiritual analogy then would speak of the bride's, of the devoted bride's purity and sincerity and depth of love. She is able to see clearly because she has eyes only for him. Not as we just saw for emperors or for philosophy or for the Pope or for the saints or for technology or for science or whatever it might be, and certainly not for idolatry or adultery or selfish gain or greed or bitterness or whatever it is that she tries to find her life in. Um, not that you try to find your life in bitterness, but you feel that somehow you gain some kind of a, a peace or a refuge by, by pouring out your, your bitterness. All things that muddy the pools, becloud the eyes, make them so that they're no longer clear. There's a, there's a disruption to the eyes. Sincerity has a simplicity that leads to clarity. Instead of trying to discern what would be most politically expedient or what would put me in the best light, the bride devoted to Christ is simply focused on pleasing him in everything that she does. Her eyes are fixed in that way. If she knows, for example, that gossip is wrong and she doesn't stop, I think I'd better 
tell these people what's going on because they might hear it from them and then I'll look bad. And so she's reasoning out, I think I should tell them about this. Well, wait a minute, the Bible says don't gossip. It's not pleasing to the Lord to gossip. Yeah, but I have to because this and this. No, it's not complicated. Your eyes are cloudy. It's simple. It's clear. You're not to gossip. So put that aside and follow the Lord in simplicity. Her eyes see clearly. She's not trying to manipulate. She's not trying to fake it. She's not trying to pretend. There's a purity that is seen in the eyes, the pools of Heshbon. Number eight, in a similar way, the nose is praised. It's described at the end of verse five as like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. This is apparently a reference to a watchtower. Sometimes you might use it for a dual purpose one, for a tower of safety and also a watchtower. But uh, in the time of Solomon, Damascus, which was in Syria, was one of Israel's worst enemies. You always see them fighting with the Syrians. This isn't a Syria that came later, but Syria at this time. A watchtower was erected then looking toward Damascus to keep watch over, are they sending armies in our direction? They would come across the, the land in that way, armies that would come to destroy us. Now, surely this represents the bride's jealous, beautiful devotion to Christ that causes her to guard jealously her relationship with him. She wants nothing to spoil her relationship with Christ, nothing to come between him and her. She has a nose looking toward where the enemies will come from that is, she's able to scent, that she, has a, she, has, she can sense what is good and what is evil to discern what is helpful and what will not be helpful in her relationship with Christ. It pleases Christ to see this allegiance in his bride that is a natural outworking of her joyful love to him. Those whose allegiance is weak don't keep careful watch over their lives. Why? Because the relationship that they have with Christ is not important. It doesn't matter if it gets disrupted. It's already probably disrupted. So they've got no reason to pay attention or to care. They're easily led astray because they don't care much whether they are led astray. They don't care about Christ the way his dancing bride does. The one who is concerned about that will take measures to keep themselves from sin, to block things that that would interfere with their walk with Christ. They, They are on guard and they know the ways that they get tripped up and tempted. They know where the enemies come from and they labor against those enemies because they care. In this way, the bride says, I love you to Jesus Christ. I want nothing to disrupt my relationship. I'm guarding my relationship. That's why it's a natural outflow of that joyful devotion to him. And then in verse five, he describes her head as like Mount Carmel. He says, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel and the hair of your head is like purple. First, let's look at the images here. Mount Carmel, we know where that is. Not like some of these other things. It's uh, um, Mount, Mount Carmel was by the Mediterranean Sea. So over toward the, you know, the, uh, the, the western side of, of, of Jerusalem. It was just to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. It rose about 1,750 feet above the plains of Sharon and Philistia, where, which were just to the south of it. And uh, it, it means, the word Carmel means fertile fields. And it, it was, this mountain 
was actually covered with olive groves and vineyards and orchards of figs and things like that were all over this mountain. So when you looked at it, you saw fruitfulness, cultivated fruitfulness there. It's often praised in the Bible for its fertility, for its beauty, and for its majesty. Purple in Scripture represents royalty and nobility. Only the wealthy could afford the dye that was used to make purple. It required a whole lot of uh, labor to, to be able to produce it. So here you have a majestic head with majestic hair. Now you say, well, in the Song of Solomon, before it talked about her having uh, dark hair. Why is it a different color now? Well, see, that, that's what we're talking about. It's, it's not, we're not talking about a physical color here. We're talking about imagery that depicts things about our relationship with the Lord. So we have to keep that in mind. So what is Christ praying here about, praising here about his bride? He is praising her as one whose head is lifted up like Mount Carmel. Okay, the plains were all around. And here's Mount Carmel because of her association with him. What do you think she was like when um, she had sinned against him and she had resisted him and she was going, she was, she was in shame, wasn't she? Surely her head was hung. It, it, it was low. It was hung in head. It, it was hung in shame. She was given over to despair, to anxiety, to fear. Uh, have you seen my beloved? If you see him, tell him that I'm lovesick, she said. She, there was an insecurity there. But now, now she's united to him again. He said, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return. Come to me fully and wholly. And she is now secure. She knows that it doesn't matter whether I live or die. If I live, it's for Christ. To die is gain because I go to be with him. I don't have to be anxious about my life. I'm not worried. I'm not, I'm not insecure. She has her head lifted up in hope and assurance and joy. She is here for him. And that gives her hope. We can always serve him. He has lifted her up from the mire and set her feet upon a rock and established her goings. With his blood shed for sin, he has washed away her sins. What we read before in Colossians 1.27, Christ is in her as the hope of glory. She's going to be completely whole. People put their trust in like technology that we're going to make ourselves immortal or something. That's no hope. The hope of glory is not in technology, it's in Jesus Christ. And that's where her head is lifted up because she has a sure and a certain promise from him. The God who promised things from before the foundation of the world and on into, were promised things to his people through the ages, things that seemed impossible, is the God who has made these promises. Christ hates to see a head that's lifted up in pride, but he delights to see a head that is lifted up in glory through him. At Babel, they lifted up their head in pride and tried to make a tower that that reached into the heavens and God frustrated their efforts. And then what did he say to, to Abraham? He said, Abraham, I will make your name great. He lifted Abraham up rather than man lifting himself up in his own efforts. This is the glory of Carmel that we walk about as those who have hope in a world that has no solid hope. They hope in things, but they all end in futility and frustration in the end. Yes, he is our husband and he has plans for us for good and not for evil. 
We must trust him. Even if, as Job says, even if the worms destroy my body, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that I will stand, that in the, with these eyes I will see him and not another. We are secure because we are in his hands. As long as we're rejoicing in him, in our relationship with him as our Lord and Savior, nothing can make us afraid. We're completely secure. As our husband, it is hurtful to him and to his honor for us to act like that he will either not be able to take care of us or will not care enough to take care of us if we have entrusted ourselves to him. But how, it ple- how pleased he is with us to see our head lifted up like Carmel, lifted up in hope, crowned with majestic hair of purple as a royal one that is, as we saw at the beginning, the prince's daughter who has been born again with hope of eternal life and an eternal inheritance with God in glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ, our husband. He brings us into his household. We aren't going about wondering what's going to happen to us. We're going about knowing and sure that we have a way that is steadfast and certain. There Jesus ends then his description of our beauty as his bride when we are dancing with joy. Again, this is a description of the beauty that we have when we are dancing with joy because of our relationship with him. We're not always, we're not always of that attitude. At the end of verse 5, he explains that he is held captive by our tresses, by our hair. Seeing now our head lifted up because of our love for him and, and trust in him makes it impossible for him to withdraw from us. He's held captive. We've seen that all along in the Song of Solomon, how that our love to him has a hold on him. He was able to withdraw for a time when we weren't devoted to him. Now, now when we resisted him, he was still committed to us, right? We taught, he was watching us the whole time and working in our lives, but not manifesting himself like I described before. And he can do that even from times when we haven't resisted him, when we're just kind of in an ordinary time of our walk with the Lord. He can sometimes detest us, withdraw the way he did with Job. Job hadn't done anything wrong particularly, but he withdrew to test him. But when we are filled with joyful devotion toward him as one who has been restored to him, such is his love for us that he says, I'm held captive. I, I, can't, I can't go anywhere. Now, I don't say this to make you think that you can then you've got to go and try to maintain some kind of high level of joy that will keep him forever withdrawing from, from ever withdrawing for you, even the way that he withdrew from Job to test him. No, I say this to show you how great his love is toward us. So great that when we are delighting in him, the way we will be for all eternity in glory, he can't bear to separate from us. He can't stand to be apart because he's so delighted with us that he wants to be with us. That's the picture that we're shown here. And it is encouragement to us that he loves us so much that we should desire, yes, to have that joyful delight in him that we all ought to have. It's unrealistic to think that we're going to have it all the time. No one in this world is there, but it's our sin that separates him, you see. And in this world, we have lots and lots of sin. But by his grace, we're growing into our allegiance with him. And you can have communion with him more and more that is sustained if we are his bride his covenant is sure and he will always love us but he will not always manifest his love to us 
or have loving communion with us until we are glorified. And then he will always manifest his love and always have communion with us. But see how he loves us and how delighted he is to have that communion with us when we're in this joyful condition. In the verses that follow, which we'll take up next week, he declares how smitten he is with us when we are filled with joy about our relationship with him. So just quickly, we'll look at this in summary. In verse 6, he tells us how pleasing we are to him. Simple words, he says, how fair or beautiful that word could be translated. How beautiful and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. Oh, I love to be with you when you're like this. I love to manifest myself to you. I love to embrace you. In verse 7, he tells how all of our attributes hang together in a beautiful composition when we're devoted to him and those times when we're filled with delight in him he describes us there as a palm tree stately slender well proportioned he says this stature of yours this stature that i've just been talking about of all these attributes that i have praised is like a palm tree everything's proportioned everything is beautiful and your breasts he says like clusters, like the, the dates on the, on the palm. In verse 8 and 9, he resolves that he will embrace us in love and that when he does, it will be the most delightful, enriching, exhilarating thing that he is going to, to embrace us in communion. His words are, here are this. I said, okay, this is a resolution. I said... Quote, I will go up to the palm tree. Okay, he just described us as a stately palm tree. Breasts are like its clusters. I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breast be like clusters of the vine. The fragrance of your breath like apples and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. Now we're going to look at that next time and we're going to see how delighted he is to embrace us and to be in communion with us. And while it does us a lot of good, it brings forth good in us when we have communion with Christ like that. In verse 10, we the bride then recognize the reality of the situation here as expressed in our words, the words attributed to the bride. She says, I am my beloved's. We've seen that before, haven't we? Indeed, we are his. We belong to him. He's taken us as his bride. We are his. We're his possession. He's committed to us. And then she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Indeed it is. He finds great delight in us and being with us and embracing us. When we're, when we're devoted to him, when we're joyfully allegiant to him and, and rejoicing, celebrating that we have been restored to, to him through his saving work, then his desire is toward us all the more. It's always toward us, but it's especially toward us when the beauty of the bride rises in that kind of a situation. More about that next week as we, um, as we carry on with these things. Please stand and let's ask God to, to give us understanding and, and, and to bless us with what we have heard today. Lord, we're so thankful for what you have revealed to us in the Song of Solomon. It's such a such an excellent book. It's so helpful for us. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would receive these things with with understanding and with delight. That we would realize that we (laughs) we have a God who is holy, who is righteous and pure, and yet rejoices in us. People that were ruined sinners, that were defiled, that were cut off because of our sin. People that still have way too much sin in our life. But we thank you, O Lord, that that you rejoice in us. You rejoice in us as as sinners that you came to redeem. And then when we're redeemed and you've changed us, then we have hearts that are, are looking to you and seeking you and you rejoice in that. And then when we actually come to you, that you rejoice in um, in, in, our, in our being with you and trusting in you for salvation, even if it's all kind of half halfway, that we're not really secure, we're not really settled, but you delight in it because you know where it's going. And that when we do have those times when you have restored us and we're filled with joy and belonging to you and all of our, all of our attributes are shining in ways that they don't even normally shine, then how pleased you are with us then. How pleased you will be with us when we get to glory. We thank you, O Lord, that, that your commitment to us is so, is so strong, that you're the best husband ever. And I pray, Lord, that we would be the most devoted wife ever because you are worthy. We thank you, Lord, that we love you because you first loved us. It's not the other way around. And that what you produce in us causes you to love us even more. We thank you for the hope that we have. That our hope of wholeness, as we saw, is not in something else, some idol. It's not in the emperor or the government. It's not in technology. It's not in science. That's not where we're going to find lasting, eternal blessing. We need to be reconciled to you. We won't find healing anywhere else. We'll find it only in the living God. We need to be reconciled to you because we're sinners. And that's what is the source and the root of all of our problems. And reconciliation is what is will bring about redemption and the solution to all that makes us a mess. We thank you, O Lord, for your faithfulness, for your promises, for your clear revelation. We pray that we would welcome your word into our lives and hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.